0: Lord, what a marvelous thought to stand in this place, Lord, and to join our voices together and declare what is ultimately true and which is ours in Jesus Christ, which is there is no chain that binds us, there is no sin that is hindering us, there is no power that overwhelms us because you have set us free. And so, Father, we thank you for such a glorious liberation that we are no longer enslaved to the bondage of sin that through the Holy Spirit, we have utter freedom to renounce ungodliness and to walk in newness of life. We thank you, Lord, that the, the fear we have at facing our own death, which oftentimes hinders us from living, God, that you have liberated us from this because we know that though we die, yet we shall live. And we know, Lord, that as the outer person is wasting away, the inner person is being renewed day by day. As we behold your glory, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, and all this is from the Spirit in whom we have freedom. And so, Father, we thank you, because there's nothing we have done to warrant this or to earn this, but instead you have lavished it upon us by grace. Your mercy is so abundant, your love so generous, that you gave Christ for us that through him we shall have life and through him we fear no death. And so, Lord, thank you for all that you have done for us, all that you've worked in us. And now as we come to your word, I pray, Lord, by that same Holy Spirit that gives us life, that you would breathe new life into us. God, revive us if we feel weak. Strengthen us in those areas where we need it most, God. Renew us in strength And so, God, work, we pray. Grant to us eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, to behold the wondrous truths in your word. God, grant to us ears that we may hear from you. God, grant to us minds that can think. And I pray, Lord, that all of this, as we gather in this place, would culminate to accomplish your purposes and your will in our lives individually and as a church. And so, Father, be with us now, we pray. Work, we pray. Be in our midst, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ah, good morning, church. It's good to see you all. I have one quick thing to let you know about. Um, a couple days ago, 31 people from our church got on an airplane and flew to Turkey. And uh, they're going to be spending some time walking through uh, the footsteps of John, the Apostle John and Uh, And who's the other guy? Paul. And uh, they're going to be in Turkey. They're going to be going through Greece. And uh, they're going to be seeing a bunch of different sites. And so I want to encourage you to be praying for them. And uh, that not just that they would be safe and all that kind of stuff. And and yes, we grant all that. But we, we pray especially that... Uh, their trip would be fruitful, that the Lord would be pleased uh, to use this trip to deepen their relationship with him, and that their Bible reading would be exponentially sweetened because of what they see and what they get to experience. As you came in, you probably saw Pastor Dennis, and I don't know who's going to be out there later, but there's a little uh, game that's uh, in the back of a trunk, I'm just reminding you about trunk, um, the trunk or treat kind of stuff we got going on the harvest carnival we need lots of candy and i hate to say it the garbage cans are much emptier than i uh, would like to see garbage cans in the sense of they're supposed to be filled with candy and so anyways that's encouraging to you uh, to continue to to bring candy so we can have a great harvest carnival or however they say it. if you have your bibles i want to encourage you to open it up to ephesians chapter 2. ephesians chapter We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 22. And um, as we continue in our church church series, it's, it's pretty interesting. I've chosen today to preach on the church as an organism and organization. I have to admit to you, I've never preached on church government before. And I have not ever had anyone ask me to. So, this... Uh, I will say is a first of its kind um, and I pray and hope that um, as seemingly irrelevant as this may be on paper that you would see how important it is in reality. I understand that as a lot of our middle school and high school students are here, the last thing you want to hear about is church government more than likely, but I'm telling you uh, as those who will one day be leading the church in various ways, you need to understand this kind of stuff because there's a lot of spiritual growth and goodness uh, that comes from understanding the church government and how it is meant to be organized. And so today what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk about the organism of a church. Uh, the fact is God has so uh, comprised the church in such a way that it grows organically as like a living body, it's an organism. But simultaneously, God has also asked the church to be ordered and organized, and so there's an organizational component to it as well. What we're going to see today is that uh, regardless of whether we're talking about the organism aspect of the church, which is the dynamic, active spiritual life in which we grow, or the organizational aspect of the church in which it's ordered and all of that governmental kind of stuff, that the church grows and the church is governed by God's word and God's spirit. And so let me say that again. I want us to understand this, that the church is both a living, living organism that grows and it's also an orderly organization that is governed. But whether it's growing or it's being governed, it's always growing and governed by the same thing, which is God's word and God's spirit. And so we're gonna look at that today. One of the reasons why this is important is because Christians of a certain generation, that is the boomer generation, generally speaking, and I know there's some uh, anomalies and whatnot, but generally speaking, the boomer generation, which is the, came to prominence in the 70s, 80s, and 90s um, with leadership in the church, they experienced what is called the worship wars, and that was many local churches in America were battling, doing battle over whether or not you can sing praise musics and have drums in the church. Some of you lived through that. I did not, so I don't understand the heat involved with it, but I know churches split over it and people hated each other for it and all of that kind of stuff. And what also is true about this time in the 70s, 80s, and 90s is many big famous churches began to do things differently regarding how they function as a church. What ended up happening was there was a seeker movement, there was an attractional movement. Uh, and a church growth movement, which is to say, if you do these particular things, your church will explode and get ginormous. And so uh, many of these leaders began to implement that, which meant getting away from denominations, de-emphasizing church membership, and subtly reducing traditional liturgy in the worship service. And so you got away from scripture reading, you got away from that kind of stuff, and instead what we did was, and I say we in the sense of just churches in general, um, they started to introduce things like skits and puppets and there was special music. And so you would play a song by Madonna or something like that in the worship service and you say, see what this song teaches us about X, Y, and Z. And uh, then you had movie clips and all that kind of stuff. And the thought is that if you did that, you could get, attract enough people in the church and unchurched uh, Harry and Mary, which is a real slogan by the by the way, um, they would want to come to your church because they hear that you have coffee, The pastor wears jeans and you do puppets. Um, Then came along the next generation, which is my generation, Generation X or Xenials or the latchkey kids or whatever you want to call it these days. Um, But we came along and we looked at this and we thought to ourselves, are you kidding me? You think that I want to come to church to watch somebody do a puppet show? It seems like if I'm going to get up in the morning and miss football, like I, it's got to be worth it. And puppet shows, it's not my, not my thing. And so we decided, as we emerged as leaders, that we would do church differently. We're going to get away from church buildings, and instead, we're going to buy or rent movie theaters and pubs. And there we will be authentic and vulnerable and real. And uh, church membership, again, that, that doesn't really matter, um, it's not really significant. And instead, what really matters is, you know what, you belong to a particular kind of church and you should be proud of it, and so the real discipleship was about consumerism. And that is to say, we began to teach people that what really matters as a Christian is that you go to the right church that meets all of your felt needs. It's the music you like, it's the kind of preaching you like, for as long as you like, with the right kind of people. And pretty soon, when you church shop, you're just trying to find a church that you will feel extra comfortable in, doing all the things you like to do. And what ended up happening is many churches began to brand themselves and then began to make sure that they are um, advertising their brand and helping people to become brand loyal. And that was evidenced by t-shirts, websites, and blogs where people were just saying, this is my church, this is what I go to, I love my church, and you have the T-shirts to prove it and the bumper stickers and all that kind of stuff. And then what ended up happening is the emerging leaders came about about, and all of them typically were tattooed hipsters who sounded much more like a Peloton trainer than like a pastor. And so they're there to be a life coach and inspirational and to get your spiritual muscles moving so that way you can be hyped up and sensationalized. And then eventually people started to say, I'm exhausted. Pastor's wearing me out with all of his just stuff. And so today what we're seeing is a return to the simplicity of the ancient church. And what I would say is it's just going back to the Bible and saying, we went crazy for a little while. Let's, let's regain a lack of sanity. No more puppets. Uh, no more hipster Peloton pastors. Let's, let's, let's focus on the eternal word of God. Let's love each other. Let's pray together. We'll preach the gospel, we'll sing together, we'll serve one another, we'll bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, God will do a work in our church and in our world that we will stand back years from now and go, wow, if we will commit to this. So today, oftentimes, the organizational aspect of the church is all but ignored. The only time that people talk about the organizational side of the church is when there is uh, some kind of abuse or some sort of cover up that happened and it is being exposed for instance the most popular Christian podcast today is a podcast entitled the rise and fall of Mars Hill which tells the story of Pastor Mark Driscoll in Mars Church Seattle and the abuse of power and many other sinful things that were happening there. It's a podcast expose, just exposing the problems of abuse of authority and whatnot. And the conclusion of listening to that podcast has been for many, especially younger people, saying, see, organizational church is wrong. Organizational church is what fosters sin. Organizational church is what makes church bad. Except for the fact when you open up your Bible and begin to read it, you read uh, in 1 Corinthians, for instance, about this church which is all kind of messed up. I don't know if you ever read 1 Corinthians, but just read it for kicks and giggles and you'll see. They were all kinds of messed up. And one of the ways in which they were most messed up was the fact that they were living chaotic lives. There was no organization. And so the solution that Paul recommends for the church in Corinth is not less order or less organization, instead, what he recommends, actually commands, is that there be more. The solution to chaos is not more chaos. I I can't believe I have to say that out loud, but it's just, for some reason, we just think, if, if we're always pursuing revolution, all you'll get is revolution. You'll never get stability. And so... When we read the New Testament, we start to discover that the church is both a living organism, which is alive and grows like a body, but we also will see that the church is an orderly organization, which is governed by God's word and spirit. So we're gonna start in Ephesians 2. How this is gonna work is first, I'm gonna lay a foundation, and I'm gonna show you that God cares about our ordering or organizational side of church and God also cares about the fact that we grow into Christ's likeness. He is concerned for both. Once we do that, then I'm gonna introduce you to two aspects of the church which historically have been uh, the way that the church has been described and that is using the words visible and invisible. There is in the church a visible aspect of the church. You can see each other we show up to a building you can see, we, we uh, have organizational charts and stuff that you can see, how it's all structured and all that kind of stuff, but there's also an invisible side of the church, which is the spiritual work of God through his Holy Spirit in our hearts that you can't see. It's a mystery. And so the visible church, what you see, and the invisible church, which is the church as God sees it that invisible side of it which is mysterious. And so let's, uh, and then we'll do it at the end. Uh, I don't know how this went over the first service, but I'm gonna do, I've never done this before. I'm gonna show you three major ways that churches uh, govern themselves. And we'll look at a chart for church government. A chart, okay. <laughs> Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21. And I'll make some observations here and then we'll press on. Or to 22, excuse me. So then Paul writes, you, talking to the Gentile believers who always felt alienated from being a member, full-fledged members of the church, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is meant to consider themselves family, verse 19. We are to consider ourselves brothers and sisters adopted by God our Father. And as a family, we are meant to love each other and serve one another. But if you notice in this text, there's a simultaneous description of the church more than just the kingdom and more than uh, merely being family, it also talks about that we are like a structure. And as you know, any structure has to be organized in some way. It has to be. You have to have some sort of foundation that the rest of the structure is built upon. Not only that, but you have to have uh, plumb and level and square uh, walls in order to make the structure a structure. And that's exactly what we see in this text where there is a foundation that Paul describes as the apostles and prophets, what I would say is the Old and New Testament, the word of God. And also it has a cornerstone. The church has a cornerstone. That is, we, we center ourselves not only on Christ, but then Christ becomes the means by which we build the church. He is what makes the church plumb and level and square. And if you don't have... Jesus to be the cornerstone of the church and you're gonna get wonky and it's gonna get sideways and stuff's gonna fall over and you'll be like, how did that happen? Well, because you're building at an angle. We need to be square and level and true and plumb and that only comes from Jesus Christ. But if you notice in verse 21, he also then goes on and says and he combines these metaphors of body and structure. He says, this whole structure, this whole church is being joined together. That's the organizational side of it. That's the structural, orderly side of it. But then you notice the organic side of it, and it is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And so what we can say is this, that God indeed wants his church to be structurally sound, that it be ordered and organizational. But at the same time, it must be organic. It has to have life and it has to be moving and breathing and growing. Some people think that we need to reduce to one or the other, where we're just vibrant zeal and everyone's passionate about being passionate, where we gather to worship the worship and not Jesus. No, let's say no to that. Or some people think it's just cold orthodoxy. All we have to do is we've got to make sure we mind our P's and Q's. We've got to make sure that we're doing everything. We're by the book. We're supposed to be. No. Instead, we have to be, as I've often said, we've got to be doctrine and emotion. We've got to have light, but we also have to have heat. And we need to be a church which is organized, but also an organism. We need to have life and vibrancy, but we need to have life and vibrancy in an ordered way which is complex and difficult, but it's nonetheless the way that God describes his intentions for the church. So now what I'm gonna do is this. I'm gonna lay a foundation for the fact that God is concerned with being orderly, organized. And one of the ways we know this right from the get-go is Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was formless and void, And in the Hebrew, what it means is chaotic. There was no order. So when you read the rest of Genesis chapter one, what do you see? You see God by his word creating order out of chaos. God is a God of order, not confusion, not chaos. Confusion and chaos are evidence of the brokenness Where orderliness is how God comes to fix things or how he created things in the first place. And it would make no sense for God, our great savior and redeemer, to have an entity called the church which lives in all kinds of chaotic ways. Let me show you what that God is concerned. Titus chapter one, here is the apostle Paul Commanding this young man Titus that he is gonna go out into the whole island of Crete and for this reason. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. Now how is Titus going to put things in order? How is he gonna, you know, make things orderly out of chaos? He's going to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, Titus is commanded to go through the towns where there are local churches, and when he does so, he is going to appoint elders in each one of those churches. And when he appoints elders, plural, in each of those local churches, Paul says that is when the church will be ordered. In other words, the church as it remains now is chaotic. Paul was there on the island of Crete preaching the gospel. Many people got saved. They began to, organ, they began to come together and organize as churches, but they were still not you know, like fully understanding what, it, what needs to happen. And so there was some you know, loose strings that need to be tied up. And so Paul says, Titus, go to the island of Crete and put into order whatever is remaining there. You do that by appointing elders. Notice it's a plurality of elders. It's not one elder. Go to the church, find qualified men, appoint them to be elders of the church so that the church would be orderly. Now it's not just the structure or the uh, government side of the church that needs to be in order, but also the worship services. And I don't have enough time to go through 1 Corinthians 14, the whole thing, but in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's talking about the just chaos that is happening as the church gathers together. People are, like, yelling at each other, blurting out, cutting each other off, and Paul says, no, we're done with that. And he concludes by saying, look, all things should be done decently and in order. Look, when you get together, you can't just be yelling and and cutting each other off and blurting stuff out. There needs to have some order to it. There needs to be something which is decent. And so, for many years, about 500 years, There has been this thing called the order of service that churches do. Now, they may not say they have an order of service, but they do. And the order of service is how are we going to decently and in an orderly fashion work through our public worship service? And you guys have all been um, experiencing that however long you've been going to church, any church. There's an order of service. There has to be an organizational side of stuff. It's not a campfire where we all sing kumbaya. And then Paul talks about this church in uh, Colossae, the Colossian church, and it's a, it's a really famous church. People are really, really walking with the Lord, vibrant faith, and uh, the gospel is spreading, and people are, um, are living out their faith in amazing ways. You read about that in Colossians 1, and then Paul's excited to come visit them. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to visit them, but he's excited nonetheless, if he can. And one of the things that excites Paul about visiting the church in Colossae is this. He says, for though I'm absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see, look at this, your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm absent from you, but I've heard a lot about what the Lord is doing in your midst, in your body life, is what it's called. That is the body of Christ, how the life of that body is lived. And he's saying, I'm so excited to come visit you because I hear that your body life is in good order. And I hear that your faith is abounding. And so I'm I'm excited to come and visit you because your body life is so orderly, it's good. Okay, so here's what I can conclude. I think you can see this. God is concerned with order. He desires his church to be ordered, his people to worship in an orderly manner and for them to experience body life in an orderly manner. But also, God is concerned with their growth. Now, when we jump to verse 21 in Ephesians 2, remember we've already talked about this. There's the structural side of it, but God also wants the church to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Temple language, like uh, Pastor Dennis read from 1 Peter chapter 2, temple language is all about God's presence. God wants us to grow into Christ's likeness. We want to be more and more like Jesus. And so what Paul writes in Ephesians 4 is significant. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, that is every part of our life, into him who is the head of the church, that is Christ, and from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, Now, notice this little, it's called a dependent clause. When each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I don't need to explain the Greek and all this kind of stuff, but if you just read this in English, when each part is working properly, the whole body will grow and build itself up in love. It's pretty obvious what Paul's talking about. To, to be working properly sounds like order. Does it not? It sounds like there's something that ought to be done. And in fact, if you do what ought to be done, there's great results. If you kind of do what you're designed to do and if the church does what it's supposed to do and it's working orderly, that the result is the whole church is gonna grow but if you notice, it's going to grow because it's being built up in love. And as we talked about before, love is one of the evidences, the most predominant evidence of being born again, a result of the Holy Spirit. So in this way, we can say, yes, God is concerned with growth. God desires that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But my question is, okay, if we're commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, how? And what I can conclude is this. We have to at least recognize, brothers and sisters, that part, a big part, of our ability to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is by associating with a properly working, orderly church. Let me say it again. One of the ways we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is by associating with a properly ordered local church. because God is concerned with both our growth and also with our orderliness, that we are governed properly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Paul concludes this section by saying, "In Christ in Him." you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so that's why I said simply this. God is concerned with the church's governance and also the church's growth. And both its government and its growth are by God's word and God's Spirit. By God's word and God's Spirit. That is the way in which the church grows and is governed. And so that's what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna introduce you, maybe for the first time, maybe some of you have heard this before, we're gonna talk about the invisible church and we're gonna talk about the visible church. The invisible church corresponds to that mysterious spiritual work in each of our hearts and our our collective church at large. It's what God is doing in us and through us. But then there's also the visible church, which is the organizational side of it, where God is appointing elders and there's order and there's direction and that kind of stuff. So we're gonna start with the invisible church. One of the men who I have appreciated so much um, was a man named Cyprian. He was the bishop of a city named Carthage, which is in North Africa today. And uh, as the bishop in Carthage, he was in charge of multiple churches. We'll talk about that in a second. But one of the statements he made is this. One cannot have God as father if you do not have the church as your mother. Let me say that again. One cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. And he goes on to explain what he means by that. What he means is God the Father is the one who adopts us and does the spiritual work inside of us. But the nurturing, the grooming, the protection, the provision, all of that's gonna come through the association with the church. The church acts motherly. So if one wants to have God as father but doesn't want the church as mother, you don't get either because it's both. And we're gonna talk about the invisible church and we're gonna talk about the visible church. We'll start with the invisible church. And we'll define it like this. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. It's the church as God sees it. And that's different than the visible church, which is defined as the church as we see it. The visible church is like, look around. All right, visible I see who's here, you see who's here. People are in attendance, people are here, they can sing, they can stand, they can sit, they can cross their arms, they can nod off and sleep. That's visible, we can see that. But then there is, I can especially see. And <laughs> it's my fault. Um, but then there's the invisible and that is there's stuff that's happening inside of you all by the Holy Spirit even as I speak that I can't see. And you can't see. And maybe you don't even recognize in yourself. But it's the invisible, mysterious work of God happening in you, and God sees it. Now, remember what we talked about about the new birth. And remember Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, that is, unless you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and cleansed from your sin by the blood of Jesus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, you cannot be saved. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now watch the invisible, mysterious work of God in verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates you, that is, gives you new life, you are born again, you cannot be saved. But that work of being born again, regeneration, is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it is mysterious. Jesus said it's like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see its effects. So it is with the Holy Spirit. You can't see the work, but you can see its effects. And so, throughout church history, Christians have referred to this work of the Holy Spirit inside of us to unite us to Christ by faith, to adopt us into God's family, the invisible church. The church as God sees it. God knows who are His. He sees the real condition of the human heart. Now, we don't often see the work of God and how He's building His church, it is invisible it is organic and there is a growth to it god is indwelling us by the holy spirit and so jesus tells us this parable to help kind of solidify this in our minds he says the kingdom of god which is experienced or manifested through local churches it is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground he sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how the earth produces by itself first the blade then the ear then the full grain in the ear but when the grain is ripe and once he puts the sickle puts in the sickle because the harvest has come any of you have ever done that silly third grade science experiment where you like do the three different soils and you put seeds in and you're like which one's going to grow uh, you know sprout first or best maybe you didn't do it i only i'm the only one all right if you have a garden or whatever and you're trying to make a garden out of seed, you know that you put the seed in, you water, you put it out in the sunshine, you do all that kind of stuff. And night and day, night and day. You sleep and you wait, and you look, and you sleep and you wait and you look. And then one day <gasps> you went to bed, nothing. You wake up, it's there. The little green leaf. How did that happen? You don't know. You just were asleep. But then all of a sudden, boom, it's there. And that is how the work of the Holy Spirit often is in our life. One day we don't believe, and another day we go, I can't help but believe. I don't know what happened. That's how my experience was. One day the light switch just went on. And I see, I see. Now, we don't get to see this visibly. You and I don't get the privilege of seeing that light switch flip on in people's hearts. But God sees it because God is the one who does it. Now, how does God do that? We kind of do know, not necessarily how he does it, but, but how he does it, uh, what he does it through. Here's how God does this, uh, how, how new life is brought about. And it's from the word of God. And we see that the word of God continued to increase. In the early church, Acts chapter 6, man, the disciples were increasing. But notice the description of the church. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, what was happening is as the word of God is being preached and taught, the gospel is going out And simultaneously, as the increase of the gospel goes out, so too the result is the increase of the disciples. Because as we've talked about before, the church is a creature of the word. Where there is no word, there is no church. Even if you have a bunch of religious people getting together. Because it's the gospel that brings life. It's the gospel that brings People together, unified in Christ, redeemed, reconciled, and restored by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the gospel that's going to do that. So that's why Paul says in Romans ten seventeen that faith, the faith that saves you, only comes from hearing, and hearing only from the word of Christ. Reverse engineer that. It's the word of Christ that goes out, that enables people to hear, and when they hear, faith will come. Put it negatively. If we don't preach the gospel, we don't share the gospel, there will be no hearing of the gospel. And if there's no hearing of the gospel, there is no faith in the gospel. And if there's no faith in the gospel, people are dead in their sins. And so we have to get the word out. It has to multiply because it is through the word of God, preached, proclaimed, that the disciples are made and new life is given. Now, why the word? Why not charades? Charades. Why not skits and puppets? It's because only the word of God is living and active. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I don't know your heart. I don't know your thoughts. I don't know your intentions, but the word of God exposes it, and God knows No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Does that not freak you out a little bit? You and I try to hide the skeletons in our closets, but God sees all the skeletons. And miracle upon miracle, he loves you anyway. God exposes us. He leaves nothing hidden because he wants to heal us of what is hurting us. And the only healing is going to come from the gospel, the word of God. And that's why I think a lot of churches, they they try to sidestep the gospel. They try to sidestep the fact that we are sinners by nature and we are deserving of the wrath of God because that exposes us. And how many of you wake up going, I can't wait to go to church to get exposed, to be shown my sin no we wake up and we're like man i just want to feel good and so the churches know that the best way to make you all feel good about yourselves is to not talk about the gospel which is sin which is the wrath of god but how the wrath of god and the sin of god has been solved in the person of god jesus christ And we have to have both. We have to tell people what makes the good news good. But if you ignore the sin stuff, it's just news. Eh. Make it good. You're going to hell if you don't repent. But praise God. God has sent his one and only son to rescue you from hell and from his wrath and to give you life and hope in his name. Repent and believe. So this is how God grows his church, through his word and through his spirit. The spirit of God gives us new birth and the word of God exposes us and shows us our need and then puts us on our way to how we can be healed. It's not pleasant many times, but it is necessary. And that's why we don't like, I don't know. Yeah, anyways, let's move on. I beat that horse to death. God knows who are his. He knows exactly who are his. In fact, when you see this in 2 Timothy 2, there's this guy named Hymenaeus and another guy named Philetus who are in the church in Ephesus, of which Timothy is the pastor, one of the elders. And Paul writes about these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says this, these men have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. These men are false teachers, false prophets, disturbing unnecessarily the faith of some people. And then notice what Paul says next. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Which if we use our cognitive abilities to do what is called inference, then we can conclude, The reason why he says Hymenaeus and Philetus are messed up and God knows who are his is because Hymenaeus and Philetus are not gods. How do we know? Because they're false teachers. Because they're upsetting the faith of some. But the foundation of God, the apostles and prophets, that stands. It ain't ain't moving. And these knuckleheads, they're not even gods in the first place. So don't don't trip out about these fools. God knows who are his. Now what this means, brothers and sisters, might be unpleasant to hear, but it needs to be said, it means that not everyone who is in the visible church is also in the invisible church. It means that in this gathering right now and at our 8.30 service and those who didn't come for one reason or the other, There are people who will gather, visibly seen in the church, participating in the life of the church, who are not gods. They're not a part of the invisible church. And some of you may know that about yourself. You came only because your wife dragged you here or because your children asked you to come. But others of you think that you are a part of the invisible church merely because you participate in the visible church and you have been deceived. If you do not repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, no amount of Christian activity will save you. No amount of voting for the right things, being moral enough, none of that will do anything. You have to be a part of the invisible church in order to be saved. And in the visible church like this, there's gonna be a mixture of, of those who are Christians and those who aren't. How do we know who's who? Well, we can't see the true condition of one another's hearts. Only God knows who are his. But does that mean then that we just kind of throw up our hands and go, well, we'll never know. Who cares? Or perhaps there's something else that God wants us to do. Perhaps there is another way that God has for us to help discern and to judge who is truly in the church invisibly and who isn't. And I think that process is very clear for us in Scripture, and I'm gonna preach on it in a couple of weeks. It's called church membership. And we'll also talk about baptism and communion. But for now, let's begin to talk about that visible church, the church as we believers see it our organizational side of it, our governance, our gathering on a Sunday morning, our participation and association with it. The theologian Wayne Grudem writes in his systematic theology that the visible church is all of those who profess faith in Christ and who give evidence of that faith in their lives. It's twofold. The visible church are those who profess faith in Christ, but they also give evidence of that faith in their life. The reason why I love this definition is because of what we talked about back in August. Remember how I talked about people can just say stuff? They just give testimony. They can just say what they are or who they are, and then we just have to like, take them at their word. So somebody says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and you're like, okay, that's just the way it is, okay. I can't say anything about that. I can't push back on it. I can't suggest anything. I just have to believe it because you said it. And so we base on profession and we base on testimony, just, okay, that is the way it is. That's how it goes. And we do the same thing in the church where somebody says, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, okay. Well, I just gotta take you at your word and I can't say anything. I can't push back. I can't suggest you're not or anything. I just have to take you at your word. Or should we? Isn't it possible maybe to push back a little bit and to suggest maybe being a Christian is more than just what you say? Because anybody can say anything. Shouldn't there be some level of evidence that there is, I don't know, real true life in you? And so when we think about the visible church, we have to also think of not just when people just say they're Christians or say whatever, whatever, but we need to see some evidence. Is there there any substantial evidence that could confirm what you just said? Now, we can also see the organizational ordering of the church. Um, There's this thing, I don't know if you've heard of this before, it's called the Belgic Confession. It was written in 1561. It was translated into uh, German and Dutch and French. It was one of the early confessions that was written during the time of the Protestant Reformation. Now the Protestant reformers, what they were doing was they wanted to distinguish themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. And so people would ask the question, what is the main difference between us and you? And so the Protestant reformers wrote what are called confessions. And so one of the earliest confessions, the Belgic Confession, it actually talks about the government of the church in Article 30, 1561. So let me read that and show you how this is helpful. They write, we believe, we Protestants, we believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in his word. There should be ministers or pastors To preach the word of God and to administer the sacraments. There also should be elders and deacons along with the pastors to make up the council of the church. So, if you notice, their understanding of the government of the church or the ordering of the church is that there are pastors, there are elders, there are deacons. Pastor Matt Pierce will preach on this next week. And the confession goes on to say, by this means, True religion is preserved. That means true Christianity is upheld. True doctrine is able to take its course and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church when such men are elected who are faithful and are chosen according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy. Now, if you notice in this confession it says whoever we appoint as pastors elders and deacons must be chosen by the church according to the word of god in other in other words the word of god governs how the church functions and we can't deviate from that but at the same time if you notice it's a spiritual ordering that we are uh, talking about which comes from the church that pastors ministers are to primarily preach and teach and administer the sacraments baptism and communion and then there are elders who alongside the pastors do that as well then there are the deacons the ones who help the poor and all those who are afflicted to make sure that their needs are being met we can visibly see all these things we can visibly see who is a deacon who isn't at our first service at 8:30 One of our elders, uh, Eddie Mariscal, was the one who did the scripture reading and prayed for the offering. We can see that. We can see who the deacons are. We can see who the pastors are. In other words, we can also see all those who attend church, but again, like I've already said, we cannot see into a person's heart. So even though we may appoint elders, pastors, deacons, we can't see into their heart. There has to be something that we are able to do to confirm By way of evidence that these men are legit we can't just take them at their word why not because Matthew 7 beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves brothers and sisters we must realize that there are people who have bad intentions And they will find the church to be a place filled with many people who may be vulnerable. And they will see that in their predatory state and they will go, I want to join the church so I can can become a predator. And outwardly they will look like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. I remember when this happened, when I was a college pastor, there was uh, some guys 24, 25 years old, that's the limit of our, our ministry, and they were coming in, and I was noticing that they were always talking to each other, nobody knew their names, we tried to introduce ourselves and talk to them, they were very standoffish, but I always noticed they were always side-eyeing, fish-eyeing some of the girls that were like 18, 19, and that makes me worried. And so I would watch this whole thing un- un- unfold before my eyes. I'm watching these dudes just kind of looking at these girls and then they're talking and then they exchange numbers and-, and I would go up to the girls and I'm like, hey, do you know that dude's name? Oh, no, I forgot to get his name. So I would ask him, what's your name? Pastor Jeff Weekly and I would talk to these guys and they refused to even give us their name. They refused to tell us their background, where they come from and all this stuff. And Jeff and I were like, "Nah." These fools are up to no good. And so I said, because you won't tell us your name, you won't tell us your background, we got we to make sure that you're out of here. At the same time, I was starting to notice that some of the girls that were talking with these guys, that they weren't coming to the ministry anymore. It had been a couple weeks. So we reached out to them and we're like, hey, you know, what's going on? They're like, oh, I just feel, you know, I just can't make it. So... We told them, hey, I just want to let you know, these guys, uh, we actually asked them not to be a part of our ministry. We had to kick them out because they're up to no good. I don't know what they're up to, but it ain't good. And the girls talked to us, and then they showed us some of their text messages and stuff, and these guys were sending highly inappropriate text messages and conversing with them in very uncomfortable ways. And I love the fact that the girls came and they said, we thank you so much for getting them out because we felt so uncomfortable, we felt like it was gross. And so they started to return to the ministry. And the whole reason why we did that is because God has called me to be a pastor, which means to be a shepherd. And those are my sheep. And there's a reason why God ordains pastors to be shepherds over the sheep and the reason why we carry a staff is because there will be wolves dressed as sheep and somebody's got to do something to get these knuckleheads out. And so we have to protect the vulnerable. We have to protect the weak. We have to protect those who are, I hate to say it, but just they're vulnerable. God has raised up pastors to do that. And so we must not be naive, brothers and sisters, to think, "Well, everyone who comes to the church is generally good." No. There's a mixture here. Some who are true sheep and some who only look like sheep and who are actually wolves. And there are others who are just wolves and they're not even trying to hide it. But we should be careful. We should contemplate and we should discern. But oftentimes when we hear this, we think, oh, yeah, these other people, they need to, like, you know, make sure they. I don't know, it's you. Do you realize that sometimes when you are blind in sin, you can't even see your own spiritual condition? So Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Are you sure you're not the wolf in sheep's clothing? Are you sure you're not here just to upset the apple cart? Are you sure you're not here to just undermine me and the elders or to show Golden Hills how it's really done? Are you sure that's not you? Test yourselves. Not that you would find a faith. Notice he says to see whether you are in the faith. As Pastor Josh preached last week, you need to watch your, yourself and your doctrine. You need to make sure that you're in the faith. Because in our culture today, we talk about faith all the time. Like, faith will get you through it without ever saying faith in what? Aliens? (laughs) Faith in Martians will get me through it? What do you mean? And when you hear this of that people are people of faith, what does that mean? We should not be concerned with whether there is a faith inside of us because we all have faith in something. Instead, we should be concerned with whether or not what is inside of us is the faith. That is the faith in Jesus Christ. That we believe with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus is God come in the flesh. That Jesus is the one who lived for us, died for us, and rose for us. That we, apart from Christ, are dead and there's no life to be had apart from him. That unless we repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus, we cannot be saved. That unless God does a work in us through the Holy Spirit, by faith, there's no way for us to ever be out from underneath the wrath of God. Unless that faith abides in you, there's no life. And you may very well, as much as your participation in the visible church may commend you that you are a part of the invisible church it may betray you in the end and Jesus may say, I never knew you. Examine yourself. Test yourself, Paul says. Because we cannot see into the heart of other people and see their true spiritual condition and I hate to break it to you, but we can't even see our own hearts and our own spiritual condition. Augustine said in the uh, 5th century, in the 400s, he wrote this. He says, there are many sheep without, that means outside the church, and there are many wolves within. There are many more sheep outside the church. We need to go get them. But there are many wolves inside the church, and we need to expel them. We'll talk more about that later when we talk about church discipline and church membership. For now, I want us to go to a place where the Apostle Paul Gathers the elders of the local church in Ephesus on the shores of Miletus And he's talking to them about kind of his last little teaching right before he knows he's about to die And he tells these Ephesian elders the ones who are ordering the ones who are leading the church He says pay careful attention to yourselves See that again elders watch yourself man And also pay attention to the flock that is the church and notice this The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word overseer is also synonymous with the word elder, and it also can uh, refer to pastor. And Pastor Matt will talk about that next week. But the whole reason why the Holy Spirit makes elders elders is to care for the church of God, to shepherd them, protect them, watch over them. Why? Because God has obtained by his blood these precious people and so me as a pastor me as an elder of a church it's not just like hey I'm just trying to put together some stuff and make people happy no no no. God has commissioned me to shepherd a flock of people who are precious in his sight who are blood-bought people and I need to take my responsibility seriously in fact it needs to be blood earnest You all, if you are a Christian, an invisible member of the church and blood-bought, you are so precious to God that he has raised up me and other elders to watch over your life, protect you, watch you, care for you, and grow you and nourish you through the preaching of the word and prayer and love and service. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. And so if I am not doing my job of faithfully praying and preaching and loving and and committing myself to you, then I am not just disobeying my job description, I'm insubordinate to the Holy Spirit. That's what God put me here for. Now watch this, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, when I go and I die, there's gonna be fierce wolves that will come in among you. From the outside, these wolves are gonna come in. They're gonna see their opportunity and they're they're gonna seek to devour the church. But then verse 30, and even from among your own selves, even from among your own number, even from this elder group, Some of you may arise and start speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Some of you will make your ministry about you, about your brand, about your following, about your books, about your blogs, about your T-shirts, about your speaking engagements. You will make it about you and you will drag people away from Jesus and they will become your followers, not his. And in that day, there will be great ruin. And so we, as elders, as pastors, we are called to this office by the Holy Spirit to care for the flock of God, to, obtain, to watch over the flock of God that God has bought with his blood, but we have to pay attention to ourselves to make sure we don't disqualify ourselves with our false teaching and our bad behavior. But how do we do that? Remember, if, if all we can go off of is just subjective, like, well they, they said they're good. They they said they're qualified, so I don't put them in there, see what happens. If we do that, we're setting ourselves up for disaster. But the book of Timothy and the Book of Titus have told us explicitly what qualified men look like to be elders and pastors. It's objective, not subjective. And so if a man comes to me and says, I want to be an elder, and he's living his life wild, reckless, and disobedience, I'm saying, God didn't call you to that. Are you saying that God didn't call me? How can you question the call of, it's easy. The word of God says this, you say that, you're wrong. Because this is the foundation that doesn't change. I'm not going to bend my neck to some subjective testimony which is not based on the clear evidence that Scripture gives me to do the testing. What kind of nonsense is that? Likewise, the elders, therefore, are also, if they're to protect the flock of God, they have to know who's the flock of God and who isn't. Do we just let everyone in? God welcomes everyone. Wide open, let's go. Oh, you're a wolf, that's all right. Or is there some protection that we have to do? And if the elders are the ones who are shepherding the flock, shouldn't there be some sort of gate to the sheep pen? And what what should that gate be? Membership. Membership. We'll preach about that because right now you're probably like, oh, I don't believe in church membership. You should. We'll show that. But that's how we do it. We as elders and pastors have to interview people, we have to see is there any credible evidence to this profession? And if so, then we welcome them. If not, then they're not welcomed. And there are times where things just, you know, you just kind of got to, you got to do the best you can. There's not always every single circumstance where it's explicit in the Bible what you should do. And so we as elders and pastors, from time to time, we'll just have to pray we we'll have to use the best discernment and judgment we can and we just have to make a decision and go and the lord is faithful providentially and sovereignly in control and he will direct us if we get off but we have to do the best we can and so like times of pandemic <laughs> do you meet outside Do you break you know the law you just go inside and ah, you give it to the government who cares and Do you meet at 8.30 or 9.30 or 7.30? Do you face east or west or north or south? Do you meet for an hour, hour and a half? Do you wear a microphone or not? All these things we have to decide on. Somebody has to decide on it because there's nothing in Scripture that tells us one way or the other. But whatever the elders decide, whatever the pastors decide, and we'll talk about this next week, that is what is decided, and so... That's what we have to do. So let me uh, close with this. Not close necessarily. I'm descending. I have not landed yet. (laughs) A controversy arose in the church of Jerusalem. Some people came and they were teaching that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved and so the apostles and the elders and the whole church gathered to discuss what they should do. And then they decided to write a letter to all the churches saying, no, we're saved by grace through faith, not through circumcision. But I want you to notice in verse 22 and in verse 28, look at that first phrase. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. You notice, it seemed good to them. This seems reasonable. This seems, it seems like the right thing to do. We have no command of God, but we're gonna do the best thing we can do. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then they go on to describe their conclusion. But if you notice, it seemed good to us. It seems good. We're using our powers of discernment. We're doing the best we can. And this is what we're gonna do. I have in the last year and a half had to make decisions that kept me up at night and uh the best way for me to explain it is to get in front of a some of you seen these videos and stuff where i had to just talk to a video camera and say here's what we're going to do as a church and basically it's me saying this is what seems good to us is the best we can do and uh we'll see how the lord what the lord does with it because we prayed and you probably don't know this but every other week the elders we pray for about an hour or more together pray for you as the church we pray for our staff we pray for those who are hurting and in need of healing we pray for all kinds of stuff we do business the other weeks our our staff is praying every Monday and we're just asking the Holy Spirit God give us wisdom give us discernment who are we to lead your people these blood bought precious people And so we ask for grace a lot and wisdom a lot. I'm going to end with this. Oh, man. Not every church organizes itself the same way. There are some churches who do it differently and all this kind of stuff. And so what I want to do is just take a moment to introduce you to church government. And I have charts. And I don't normally do this but I want to introduce you to three main ways people do their church government. i want not going to talk about the pros and cons of each. It would take way too long. But I'm going to make my way to the way we do it and explain that, and then we'll share in communion together. In orderly church government, uh, some folks have decided is to be done in, in an Episcopalian way. Episcopalian. And that is there's an archbishop who oversees a number of bishops, And these bishops oversee what are called rectors. And rectors are the ones who are like the pastor of that particular congregation. If you notice, there's no elders in this organization. And those who would function as elders, the bishops and archbishops, actually have authority over a multitude of churches. But we saw in Titus chapter one, verse five, that Paul says, go into every town and appoint elders in every church in every town. And so I would say this is not the best way to go about doing church government because there should be elders who are leading individual specific local churches, not a group of churches. Um, By the way, that is the the form of government that first sprung up in the second and third century. Eventually it evolved into the Roman Catholic Church as we know it today, the Orthodox Church after the schism in the 10 hundreds. It's also what the Episcopalian church, the Anglican church, uses today. This next one is called Presbyterian. A Presbyterian church, we're gonna work from the bottom up, consists of a congregation that by that little dotted line, they elect elders. And so what happens is you get together once a year and somebody, they have a nominating time. Somebody says, all right, it's time to elect elders. And somebody stands up, I nominate so-and-so. And And -and so-and-so's like, what? (laughs) And then they go through a process of being discipled and ordained into that position. And then all those who are nominated and who are ordained as elders will then sit on a governing body called the session. The session comprises uh, lay elders and also staff elders, like the senior pastor or associate pastor. And they govern the local church. And then some people from the session or all the session will then also work on a governing board called the presbytery. And the presbytery oversees a collection of sessions. So what ends up happening is, let's say a church wants to hire a senior pastor. The congregation says, we want this guy. The presbytery comes in and goes, nah, you're gonna have this guy. You're like, oh, okay. So that's that. And then members of the presbytery go to what is called the general assembly that meets uh, once a year every other year. And that's where they ratify doctrine and stuff like that. Like recently the PCUSA began to ordain Um, yeah, all kinds of people who don't fit biblical qualifications and all that. The third way is the congregational way. And the congregational way has many iterations. You can have true democracy, which is like, we just get together and we're like, what color do you want the carpet? Purple, green, fuchsia. And then we have a vote. And then if we don't get a majority, then we go back. All right, let's narrow it down to fuchsia and green. And then we vote again. And then pretty soon people will fight each other in the parking lot. That stuff actually happens. Churches split over carpet more than you realize. That is not what we do, nor do we have a church board, so to speak, where there's like a a board of trustees that decide everything about the church. Instead, this is our form of government. This is how we order ourselves. You as uh, the congregation, which is the members of the church, are tasked with the responsibility of electing or ratifying elders. And that will come from among yourselves to represent you. The congregation not only has the power to elect elders to represent them and to govern uh, the church, but also they are the ones who vote on things like the budget, the dismissal of members through church discipline, the hiring of a senior pastor, and a few other things. And so in this way, the congregation has the final authority. The elders can make recommendations for budgets, but the congregation, the members of the church vote on it. The elders can make recommendation for membership um, and then the congregation typically votes on it. We don't do that because our size just got so big that now the elders just do, do that and the congregation affirms. And if you notice, there's a little E there with an asterisk, that is the pastor. One pastor on the elder board And those elders are all equal, including the pastor, which means I don't get to show up on a Wednesday night and bang my fist and take off my shoe and throw it against the wall and get my way and throw a tantrum. I have only one vote. And if I get outvoted, I submit to my elders. I get true accountability that way. I'm not allowed to run off and do my own thing. And uh, they ask me hard questions. And I ask them hard questions. And there's a mutual plurality authority there and that way we are protected Uh, from there uh, we we govern the church by welcoming members do the interviews Um, we also oversee uh, through the shepherding department our baptisms and various other things and the deacons work alongside of us uh, to help us with the administration of god's resources to meet the people's needs there's more that could be said about this there probably should be more that said about it but I've bored you enough. People are leaving, so let's stop. (laughs) Here's what I want to do. I want to finish our time together by sharing communion, by participating in the Lord's Supper. And here, let me explain it, why this fits good with the whole church government stuff. If you think about it, the invisible work of God in our hearts one of the ways that it can be made visible is through baptism. When we immerse people into water, we do so based on their testimony, their credible testimony, which has been reviewed by elders or pastors. And we say, yeah, they're, they're genuine Christian. And so the inward invisible renewal of the Holy Spirit is now going to be outwardly and visibly symbolized in them being plunged under the water to symbolize death, their union with death and Uh, Christ's death and they're gonna emerge out of the water to symbolize the new life they have in Christ it's beautiful likewise there is an ongoing union that we Christians have with God through the Holy Spirit where we remind ourselves of God's love for us his grace for us and he strengthens us through faith as we remember the grace of God in the gospel and that invisible truth of Jesus that we can't see. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. We can't see it today, but we believe it. And that invisible truth that we believe is symbolized visibly with a bread and a cup. And we look at that bread, and we look at that cup, and we eat and we drink, remembering by faith this is what God has done for us. And so through this visible act, we are reminded of this invisible reality. And therefore, we as the visible church participate in this and I recognize that there may be some participating who are not part of the invisible church. But since I can't know the hearts of every person, I have to say this, Jesus invites everyone who has repented of their sins and confessed faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for their salvation to come and to participate. If you are not a Christian, You have not repented of your sins. You have not believed in Jesus. I ask that you do not participate with us today. This is a celebration which is reserved for the church of Jesus Christ, those who are united to Christ by faith. In eating this bread and drinking this cup, we are proclaiming what God has done for us. And if you have not yet believed that, then your eating and drinking is in vain. But if you have repented of your sins and you believed in Jesus, confessing your sin, trusting that Jesus is sufficient to save you, then by all means, I invite you to participate with us. Take the cup and hold it and we will eat it together and drink it together as a church to symbolize our unity in the gospel. The church ultimately is not based on a visible organization. It's based on the grace of Jesus Christ. But it is visibly manifested Jesus builds his church through the preaching of the gospel, through faith. We are washed clean of our sin. We are renewed. And so communion reminds us that Jesus builds his church by his blood and by the gospel and through this Holy Spirit. And God strengthens us through this process. So as we come to the communion table, let us remember the body and blood of Jesus, a time in which God will strengthen us in grace through faith a time to remember that God has made us right with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the church is welcomed. Come, eat and drink. So Father, I pray that as we now participate in the Lord's Supper, as we eat this visible bread, as we drink this visible juice, God, that you would remind us of your invisible grace, that you would remind us of the love you have for us, That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were your enmity, enemies, hating you, not wanting anything to do with you, you overcame our resistance and you would have us for yourself. So Lord, as we eat and drink, may we do it in remembrance of you. And God, would you supply us with the strengthening grace in this moment that by faith we would be nourished and we would leave here both holy and happy for having communed with you and each other so be with us now we pray in Jesus name amen we're going to ask the folks to come forward they're going to hand out these chalices again let let it pass if you are not a christian if you are take one and participate with us paul writes this that he received about the lord's supper that he received from the lord what he also is delivering to the church That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as the folks pass the communion elements around I'm gonna ask you to take the cup and hold it. We eat and drink together. But in the meantime, we're not having Pastor David come out and lead us in singing. We're gonna have a time of silence. In a world filled with all kinds of noise, it's good to just be still and to know that God is God. And so we're gonna take some time to examine ourselves, to see whether or not we're in the faith. And if we pass the test, use this time to praise God for his grace and for the love that he has given us in Jesus Christ. So let's spend some time doing that now. Invite you now to take your chalice bread side up and to go ahead and open that plastic layer and place and hold that bread in your hand and I want to invite you to look at it turn it over in your hands touch it see it this visible bread sitting in your hands represents and symbolizes an invisible truth that God has come in the flesh He lived in a body, he died in a body, he was buried in a body and he rose with a body and he's coming back with a body. And he's gonna give you a new body as real as this bread is in your hands. It's real and it's for you. So Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. So church, let's remember it. You can turn over your cup. And once again, this liquid symbolizing the blood that was shed at the cross. It's redness reminding us of the blood of the new covenant that Jesus enacted for the forgiveness of sins. This visible symbol represents an invisible reality. Jesus really died for you. And you can really have your sins cleansed. And those of us who believe, we have. We have. And so Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. So church, let us remember Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that every month we as a church get to be reminded of your grace through eating the bread and drinking the cup, symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus. God, as the days will pass in this coming week, many of us will be worn out and tired. And God, may we remember you. And would you in our remembering strengthen us And God, I pray that as we finish our service here, we conclude with singing, I pray that you would find in our hearts a deep gratitude and a joy for having freed us from our sin, putting us into the church, adopting us as your own. And Lord, we recognize that the church grows invisibly through both word and spirit, but the church is also to be governed According to your word and by your spirit, as elders and overseers, pastors are appointed by the spirit and are qualified according to scripture. God, may you protect the Golden Hills Community Church from ever becoming an untrue church. May we always be led by godly men. May we always be a church committed to the gospel. And God, as we finish singing together, may our voices unite as one. And we would sense deep in our heart the unity we have because of Christ. You have made a holy and happy people. And for that, we are grateful. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.